Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody think about it. Everything's polluted. The environment, the government, the schools, you name it. We were on uh, 92 FM tonight. It feels like a nice, clean little band. No one else is using it. Price is right. Are you listening to this? Yeah, of course I'm listening. There's nothing to do anymore. And all the great themes have been used up, turned into theme parks. So I don't really find it exactly cheerful to be living in a totally, like, exhausted decade where there's nothing to look forward to and no one to look up to. He's got a pirate radio station. Nobody knows who he is. I, I could be that anonymous nerd sitting across from you. And when you turn around, and he just looks away. He never looks back at you again. This is a song for the 90s. Welcome to Dorina Central, man. Take your order, please. Yeah, I want... That was deep. I like... The idea that a voice can just go somewhere uninvited, like a dirty thought in a nice, clean mind. I know you. Not your name, but your game. Come to me, or I'll come to you. So you are him. Guess who? It's me again with a little attitude for all you out here in White Bird Land. It's 10 o'clock. Do you care where your parents are? This radio person is the whole problem. Are we going to allow this guy to be heard by anyone who can turn a dial? I'm in jail! I'm going to stay here! I like it! And he's trying to tell you that there's something wrong with this school. You're not hey, what, you, to be what do you want to swim? Come on, Bill, I'm a big fan of you. Get off the bus. Get out! Out of control. Why not do something crazy? It makes a hell of a lot more sense than blowing your brains out. FCC, you know what that means? This phone call has been traced. This is my life you're screwing around with here, you know? Not anymore, it isn't. This is everyone's life. Mark, you can't leave it like this. You out there? You listening? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me from the wilds, the prodigal son himself, Mr. Rob St. Mary. Hey, put that cock ring away. 
It's just a ring with a cock on it. Ah, okay. All right. All right. This week we are looking at the 1990 film from writer-director Alan Moyle, Pump Up the Volume. The film stars Christian Slater as Mark Hunter, a.k.a. Happy Harry Hardon, or Hard Harry, a pirate DJ who goes on the air every night to rant about the life of a high school student and expose the injustices of the world. Just an FYI, we're going to be getting into spoiler territory on this episode, so if you haven't seen Pump Up the Volume and don't want it ruined for you, just go ahead Get up out of your chairs, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Or you can just turn off the podcast and come back after you've watched the film. We'll be here. So, Rob, when was the first time you saw Pump Up the Volume, and what did you think? I think I saw it maybe a year or two after it came out. So it came out in 1990, which means I would have been 12, so I don't think I saw it when I was 12. But I do remember seeing it at least middle school and maybe freshman year high school, which would have been sometime in the early 90s. So it had a big impact on me in a lot of ways, um, and we'll get into that in a bit. But uh, key for me was it introduced me to a lot of bands that I didn't know, um, and specifically Leonard Cohen. And I will uh, explain how this uh, whole deal with Leonard Cohen and my love of Leonard Cohen probably came out of this film. And also, uh, whenever I can find Blackjack Gum, I still enjoy Blackjack Gum because of this movie. I've got good news. That gum you like is going to come back in style. That's true. I saw this one. It came out August of 1990, I want to say. So it was just a couple months after I graduated. I was already working at the movie theater I've talked about before. I saw this at the theater, uh, probably on a free pass or just kind of snuck in. And I, I liked it. There was a lot of good music, like you were saying. I definitely picked up the soundtrack. I remember it was kind of clever. You know, HR is the lead singer of Bad Brains, but in this case, he was replaced by another HR, Henry Rollins, doing Kick Out the Jams. I was kind of sad that Mars's uh, Pump Up the Volume was never on the soundtrack. Pump up the volume, pump up the volume, pump up the volume, dance, dance. You know, that would have really fit right between Soundgarden and uh, Sonic Youth, but oh well, not alphabetically, obviously. I liked the movie. I didn't love the movie. I had something against Christian Slater at this time. He, I had only seen him in Heathers before. Which is funny to me because he had only been around a little bit at this point. I mean, he did this and what, maybe Tucker? Or was this uh, before Tucker? Um, well, he had done Heathers at this point, right? That was 87? Mm, 89. Okay. I had seen him in that, and I really disliked him in that movie. Just his kind of Jack Nicholson impersonation that he was doing, it just seemed to carry through on everything. And years since, I found out that this just kind of his voice. But in this one, I was just like, yeah, I still like uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest better. But yeah, um... I thought it was all right. I don't know if it holds up that well, and I'm curious to talk to you about that uh, as far as like how teenage angst uh, kind of looks, you know, God, how many 26 years down the line. Um, but yeah, so that was the first time I saw it. Sounds good. So let's go through the plot a little bit. We uh, have happy Harry Hardon. And he has been moved from somewhere in the Midwest to Arizona. New York. 
New York to yeah. Arizona. That's yeah. quite a big change. The folks around the dinner table have a mention of New York. But even before we meet him, there's a great little bookend to this film, and that's the um, with uh, voiceover, and then we get the title card. And it's just this uh, VO as we kind of uh, have this sort of flyover of the suburbs where we get this, here's your uniformity, here's your everything looks the same, you know, um, tract home living. Is there life after high school? Because I can't face tomorrow, let alone a whole year of this shit. Yeah, you got it, folks. It's me again with a little attitude for all you out here in white bread land. All you nice people living in the middle of America, the beautiful. Let's see, we're on uh, 92 FM tonight, and it feels like a nice, clean little band so far. No one else is using it, and the price is right. <laughs> and yes, folks, you guessed it. Tonight, I'm as horny as a 10-pecker to house, so stay tuned because this is hard, Harry, reminding you to eat your cereal with a fork and do your homework in the dark. And then we get to the school, and we really don't see him or anything like that until we get to the first um, the first time he's on mic. And, of course, we hear the tones of Everybody Knows by Leonard Cohen and the opening credits. Yeah, over all of the accoutrement of uh, uh, Mark's room there, or is it more like a garage space or something? It seemed- It's the basement, is what I've been led to believe. It's the basement okay. of the house. So it's sort of like he's taken over the basement, and as I was re-watching it, I realized that this whole movie could have been over pretty quick if, if the folks actually went into the basement at some point beyond the one point later in the film, in the third act. Um, I guess they could have figured out that he was the pirate DJ. But anyway. Yeah, he's got a lot of shit in his room. And it, it's <laughs> it's good at one point we see him like burning letters and stuff because I'm like, okay, at least he's getting rid of some of the stuff that's in that room because it seems to be kind of a mess, you know. But yeah, his folks definitely ascribe to the horror film axiom of don't go in the basement. <laughs> exactly. It's such a many horror movies. <laughs> And at first, I thought this movie was going to be much more about this uh, pregnant girl, Cheryl, who is being kicked out of high school, and it seems to be kind of like a scandal there. And that seems to be kind of uh, Mark's first um, thing that he's really kind of standing up on his soapbox about. I was curious, how long do you think Mark's been doing this broadcast? Because he seems to have a pretty healthy audience at this point. Uh, I mean, to me, it kind of seems like from the the parents' conversation around the dinner table that I can deduce that maybe he's been there, uh, you know, most of a school year is what it sounds like. Um, So I don't think he's been there multiple years because his character is very isolated. He doesn't talk to anyone besides the teacher uh, at one point. Doesn't seem to really have any friends. He talks about that as well. And his father has taken this position in Arizona has come out there to basically be the superintendent of the school district is what I'm understanding. Uh, and it just sort of seems like maybe they moved in the summer and then school started. So maybe kind of doing the timeline, this could be, you know, I don't know, February, March, April. It's hard to tell because it was shot in Arizona. I mean, if it was shot in the mid, (laughs) if it was shot in the Midwest, maybe there would be snow around or something. Right. Yeah, and he's kind of had this agreement with his folks that, uh, you know, basically he gets good grades and they leave him alone. Yeah, which is usually what most folks want for their kids, especially in those angsty teen years where they don't really want to deal with them. Right. 
<laughs> you just go down in the basement, you watch your, your movies, you do whatever you need to do. And as long as you bring home a good report card, you're all right. Yeah, and we get this sort of feeling um, with his character. He says it in a couple of parts, and there's even uh, an allusion to, uh, I think, what is it, uh, For What It's Worth, the the old uh, song from the 60s. It's old, sorry, if anyone's of that age. Uh, you know, come on, people now, smile on your brother, all that thing. And to me, the whole film is this generation gap between the boomers and the Gen X kids. Just And it just seems that he's pulling up all of this stuff and throwing it in the faces of the boomers and saying, basically, you're sellouts. I don't know. Everywhere I look, it seems like someone's getting butt-surfed by the system. My, my parents are always talking about the system. And, and, and the 60s and how cool it was. Well, look at where the 60s got them, huh? Come on, people now. Smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. Oh, that was 60s. This is a song for the 90s from my buddies, The Descendants. Welcome to Dorena Central. May I take your order, please? Yeah, I want... Why don't we listen to that one again, huh? Welcome to Dorena Central. May, may I take, take your order, order please? please? Yeah, I want... You want whale sperm with that? I hate the 60s, I hate school, I hate principles, I hate vice principles. But my true, pure, refined hatred is reserved for guidance counselors. You could have had your revolution, you could have changed the world, but you didn't. You bought in, you became yuppies, you became strivers, and now you're pushing that yuppie striving stuff on us, and that it doesn't feel authentic. I mean, I think that's the one thing that I got from this film um, in I had to, you know, just rewatching it now after years. Uh, it, it seems very sort of in that in that mindset to me that this is almost the beginning of that idea of um, plastic suburbia. You know, like a strip mall every five miles that looks like the strip mall five miles back, and and all of that, and just kind of going, really, is this is this what it is? And he's got that whole line in there about, you know, I'm tired of living in this exhausted decade that feels like you know all the great themes have been bought up and turned into theme parks yeah there's a great part in here just a real quick kind of montage of him walking through uh the neighborhoods and stuff and there's one neighborhood that's being built and it's then later on he's going through another neighborhood and it looks exactly the same as the one that's being built currently and it's just like okay yeah it really was a nice like one of the few scenes without like you know the the uh, DJ stuff happening and everything where we get a little bit of quiet and just kind of contemplate what's going on with him and seeing all of these houses that look exactly the same. And to me, that's even more powerful than that opening thing that you're talking about as far as going over suburbia and everything, but it just really brought it home for me. Exactly. And the parents too. I mean, I, I kind of get this feeling that, um, the parents have bought in and and he talks about, you know, they're always against the system. And even, even his mom says that to his dad, you know, you used to be a young radical and used to be against the system. And it's like, yeah, now I am the system. So it's the idea that they've basically bought into it. And then at the same time, and, and I kind of really noticed at this last watch, which I really didn't get the first time 
is that if you look around the school, there are these like one word slogans. Mm-hmm. So it says pride, achievement, government, and all of this. And there are these sort of like, you know, that old sort of like Apple ad campaign where it was like think different and like a photo of Einstein. And th- there is all of this kind of stuff in the school, like out in the courtyard and then in like the principal's office and stuff like that. And it almost has this sort of like sterile dictatorship Soviet kind of design, you know, yeah. this real utilitarian design that to me, like, it, it almost kind of blends into the background, but at the same time, it just seems very like one word, you know? like hate love you know there's there is no um nuance it's just this is what the authorities want for you and the and the thing that's interesting to me to look at is that um and maybe when i was younger i always thought everybody seemed so much older um when you talk about parents and teachers but now i am sort of that age almost it's um the, the the parents and teachers in here seem younger than than usually they would cast in a film. What I mean is, like, usually teachers are casted 50-plus, it seems, or parents. And in here, you get the feeling that these parents are mid-40s, maybe, you know? So maybe they had him when they were in their mid-20s, so, or so, mid-late 20s. So um, everyone seems young to me as I look at this. Yeah, yeah, they they definitely... I mean, um, the the one... The one teacher who's kind of his compatriot, um, played by Alan Green, she definitely uh, seems much younger than I am right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it just feels like that. I don't. It must just be with age. It could be. Yeah, even the the principal, uh, uh, Mrs. Cresswood, played by Annie Ross, she uh, doesn't seem that old. She doesn't seem like the principal from uh, Back to the Future, who was old. Back in the fifties, and he's old in the eighties as well. You know, he's the guy's always bald. You know, yeah. And like I said, talking about sort of this age gap and everything, you notice that in the basement he plays. You know, the Descendants. He's got these punk records. You know, he's borrowing records from his parents' um, record collection to a certain extent. I think maybe Leonard Cohen would be something that their his folks would be into, not necessarily him. But at the same time, when he's around the house and when he goes to the office and eventually finds that memo which you talk about uh, leads to this whole conversation about the, the pregnant girl who gets thrown out of class um, there's a Grateful Dead poster on the wall in the dad's office so so there's, so there's to me there's this thing where it's like yeah we're boomers and we still are attracted to those things that we had in our youth although we don't necessarily um, embrace the revolution as much as we used to anymore I love that Harry's biggest target in this, at least at first, is this guidance counselor, Mr. Deaver. Um, did you ever have much experience with guidance counselors? Um, I had, actually, uh, my best friend, his mother was our guidance counselor in oh. our school. Um, you know, I, I always had a weird... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Weird kind of thing with uh, the the guidance staff at my school. Not necessarily her. I think I had someone else. But I, I just remember um, taking a lot of standardized tests. They gave us like a personality quiz. Like one of those, um, would you be better off as a florist or a you know park ranger or a cop? I mean, like trying to figure out what your you know, goal in life is kind of thing. But I really think that um, the the guidance counselor and the in some of the teachers who are aligned with the principal who is shoving people out of school because their test scores are are, are not where she wants them to be, uh, just all represent various sort of like vassals of the system. You know, if you get the idea that, you know, Crestwood represents this sort of totalitarian, you know, Joseph Stalin kind of <laughs> character. Then she has, you know, she has the commissars who are out there doing the dirty work, cracking heads, uh, right. literally, at one point uh, for her. So. Yeah, I was very surprised that uh, Mr. Murdoch uh, takes a swing at that kid. I was like, oh, okay. I, I can't imagine that happening today. Yeah. I I mean, this was... I think in the state of Michigan, I don't know if this is a federal thing, but in the state of Michigan, I think they got rid of corporal punishment around 1986. And the reason why I remember this is because um, I had I was rather disruptive and rambunctious in my youth, uh, my early youth, kindergarten, first, second grade. And by the time I got to second grade, they couldn't paddle me anymore. They used to actually paddle you. They had this, oh, yeah. Yeah, in, in my elementary school, they had this thing that looked like a... Looked like a cricket bat with uh, holes drilled into it, and they would just lean you over the desk and just f- swat you with it, and um, and then they just send you back to class. But um, I think around 1986, at least in Michigan, I think they banned that corporal punishment thing, and then they would just they would just throw you out. You know, <laughs> you just get to go home for a day or two and cool off. Right. But um, so so the idea of the um, one teacher getting physical with that kid in this era still is kind of like, like I could see it. I mean, like granted you wouldn't punch a kid in the face if you were a teacher, but, um, but I could still see some sort of like, you know, principal grabbing the kid or, you know, shoving up against a wall or something like that. That wouldn't be out of line. There's a couple of things in here actually that, that I think really, um, you, you just couldn't do today. Like for example, um, the character that Christian Slater plays, he smokes, like a, a, te- a teen character who smokes, just smoking in film in general is is a lot less than it used to be. Right. Yeah. Um, the decks for smoking. Yeah, and then also, um, and Alan Moyle talks a little bit about this in the interview that you'll hear in a bit. Um, when Samantha Mathis Samantha Mathis takes off her sweater in the one scene, and she's topless, you know, completely bare chested as he is. Um, that that I don't think they would do in a movie that quote unquote is for teens. Uh, there's, you know, and then I, I think it's, I think it's a rather brave film in certain ways because it does have conversations about teen suicide and also homosexuality, but it's not in that sort of after school special 
kind of you know feeling that you know hey we're gonna we're gonna make a real serious point about this one thing kids um it's just sort of this is just the general you know this is the life that everyone has to live so let's just kind of talk about it well yeah i I was noticing today that there are a few letters that harry reads on the air and one of them is um from the Samantha Mathis character, Nora De Niro was her her character name, um, where she writes to him and uh, basically is writing these kind of like bad poetry, sex fantasy kind of things. Uh, there's the one where the two girls have written about um, one of their brothers trying to sleep with them, and then that ends up being kind of a hoax, apparently. Uh, but the, yeah, there is the teen suicide letter, this guy Malcolm, and then there's the um, the one gay teen uh, who uh, talks about his experiences, and um, and then the other letter that gets writ- read on the air is actually a fake letter, and that's just Mark talking and basically being himself or, or having written a letter to himself almost. And I found that to be the most interesting one because he can't seem to connect to anybody except through the microphone. And I really appreciate that about this character that when he's at high school, he's really quiet and reserved and stammers and all this. And it isn't until he gets in front of the microphone that he's able to really find his voice. You know, and that's the thing that's interesting for me is, you know, I, I've been in, I guess some form of radio coming up now in 15 years. Uh, I didn't necessarily think of this film as an influence on my radio career, but maybe it was because this was one of those movies that I watched in my early teen years that, that I really enjoyed. But um, the one thing that I realized in reference to his, his character in that way, that he has trouble sort of relating to people in the real world. But when he's, doing the job when he's that character doesn't have a problem and this is something that i kind of realized about myself years ago and you sort of see the same thing with uh performers like if you uh interview uh famous folks they will often say you know when i'm in character when i'm doing the job i'm I'm fine but i have trouble relating to people um, in one-to-one or in public in that way. So, for example, with myself being in radio, I've interviewed presidents of the United States. I've interviewed um, people on the street, all kinds of folks. You know, um, I've even, you know, as it was because I was doing hard news for quite a long time, would go into situations and I'd have my mic and I'd ask somebody a question and then we'd get upset with me. You know, and that was fine. You know, I didn't have a problem with that because I realized that what they were rejecting, who they were getting upset with, wasn't me. They were getting upset with the reporter. And it's that microphone, it's that thing, you know, that's between me and the world. And if it was just me without the microphone, um, I probably wouldn't have been as bold. I probably wouldn't have asked those questions. I probably wouldn't have been able to do it, you know, because... I think there was part of me in my youth that would have said, you know, they're rejecting me, not the reporter. So in a way, I think it may be sort of a similar where um, it's it's this persona, it's this uh, it's this distance. It's sort of the thing with Olivier where they would talk about Olivier and when he would act, he would always have some sort of makeup. He always has some effect on his face, even if it was something small. Because for him, that was a way for him to get into character and not be himself. 
and and I think in the same way that's what that microphone represents in that sort of DJ show for him. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. Was Good Morning Vietnam like right around this time? Was that like '89? Yeah, I think it was '89. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just uh, thinking about how Robin Williams compares to um, Christian Slater in this is Robin Williams definitely when he gets on the air is a different person, but he is still pretty obnoxious when he's not on the air. Well, I also get the feeling, too. I mean, another one that came out, and I think that may have been 88 uh, or 89, is Eric Bogosian and Oliver Stone's talk radio. And the character that he plays, Barry, um, is just more amped up on the air than he is when he's out in public because he's out in public and we see some scenes of him i believe uh bogosian's character at like a basketball game with his girlfriend or something like that and he still has a lot of these ideals and a lot of these um things uh in his character but obviously he's not ranting <laughs> in public like he does behind a microphone right you know eric bogosian i always thought would make the perfect if they're going to do a biopic about lenny bruce that didn't star dustin hoffman i thought that he would be the perfect lenny bruce for a movie and so it's ironic that there is some lenny bruce in this one as well and talking about those 60s ideals and everything we have kind of a throwback and lenny bruce famously you know not necessarily respected that much in his own time and definitely you know put down by the man and i feel that mark and lenny actually shared a lot of the same qualities yeah there's the scene in there where he goes to the library to return the book and and i don't know you know it's a high school library um (laughs) i'd have to say for crestwood to allow how to talk dirty and influence people by lenny bruce to be in the high school library is pretty progressive um, it's yeah. it was Lenny Bruce's uh, ghostwritten autobiography. It was actually written by uh, Paul Krasner, who um, used to do. Uh, uh, he he had a magazine, and Krasner also was an editor at Hustler at one point. And he um, is, is another one of my favorite satirists. Who you know, uh, not a lot of people know him, but you should definitely look him up. But. That book is quite good because it goes into a lot of the, um, if you've never read it, it goes into a lot of his stuff about his youth and, and growing up and him trying to figure out the world. So so in a way, it kind of does uh, echo, as you were saying, sort of Mark's own, own journey and trying to figure out uh, what this whole growing up thing is all about. My high school library, I loved it. They would celebrate Band Book Month, but then they wouldn't carry things like Slaughterhouse-Five because... <laughs> Because it's dirty, you know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we celebrate Ban Book Month by banning books. That's, exactly. that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Then, then we'll have a book burning out back at 5 o'clock yeah. if anyone wants to stick around. <laughs> you know, the one thing, so I wanted to get back to guidance counselors, and I just wanted to rail a little bit about my own guidance counselor, um, Mrs. Browbeater. She uh, was terrible, absolutely terrible. Um, like was her name really browbeater no it was actually brock Brader, but one of oh, the okay. teachers would call her mrs browbeater which i thought <laughs> to be amazing <laughs> so and uh she was oh god she was terrible i was in all of these advanced placement classes and stuff right and i had no idea until after i got to college that there's a, such a thing as an ap test where you can test and basically get college credit for it. So I took all these AP classes basically for nothing 
It was like, okay, great. Thank you. I'm glad you were such a good counselor to even tell me any of that stuff. And when it came to uh, to uh, going into colleges and stuff, again, useless, completely useless. Well, you should be happy that at least you had AP courses. In high school, uh, we went to ask about getting AP courses, and we were told that uh, by our principal that to create an advanced placement um you know, curriculum within the school would create a elite group of students that would make other students feel uncomfortable because they couldn't achieve at the same level. <laughs> That's no bullshit. That's actually what he told me. Wow. So to which I said to him, well, you know, we have the autistic kids on the second floor. Um, I wonder if they feel weird being, you know, put off by themselves. And do we feel weird for them being put off by themselves uh, in a particular way? So, um, so attitudes like that, eventually led to, to be honest, my own sort of version of Hard Harry, although I was a magazine, um, you know, a, a zine publisher, I'd have to say, a Xerox zine publisher with a friend of mine. And uh, we did five issues my senior year, and I know that the principal didn't like it, and there was some discussion of them trying to shut us down, to which I let it be known loudly in his presence that uh, if he felt that that would be a good idea, um, I would be more than willing to tell the local media, given the fact that I have the valedictorian salutatorian of my class on my staff, so I'm sure they would have a field day with... Um, you know, the administration here cutting back on free speech for kids who are trying to be creative instead of destructive. <laughs> I was on the school paper doing a lot of hard hitting news, you know, like who is named band sweetheart, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we were, we were WikiLeaks before WikiLeaks because I was on the school paper too. <laughs> you know, geek out here, kids. <laughs> and, um, they wouldn't run certain things because they were afraid that the administration would get upset. So we stole them and reprinted sections of them in our paper. Nice. So and for Halloween that year, um, what we would do is the back page of the magazine, the back cover would always be a game or it would be some sort of thing. And for Halloween that year, we included string and my friend Chris drew a lovely mask that looked exactly like the principal that you could uh, wear for Halloween. <laughs> I found out years later that apparently the woman that ran the school newspaper wanted to burn me in effigy. So, <laughs> so seeing the principal in this movie burn in effigy, I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can yeah. relate to that. Yeah. Which, which was another, now that you bring that up, is another thing that I don't think you would see in a teen movie this no. you know, nowadays. Especially considering that not only do they burn the principal in effigy, but they hang her in sort of a mock lynching. Yeah. Which, um, you know, that would be a little bit... Uh, PC today uh, that would not that would not fly. People would oh, get I, upset. I don't see much of this movie flying in a post-Columbine world. I mean, you know, oh, let's trash the school. Let's, you know, and by the way, where do they get that huge erect penis that they are <laughs> trashing the school with? Like at a moment's notice, they just have this, this. giant cock battering ram looking. Yeah, thing. it was amazing. <laughs> you guys just drive around with that in your jeep. Yeah. Hey, you know, if you're a fan. Of hard Harry, you know. Yeah. What do you do? Okay. You ain't got nothing to do. I mean, this is before the internet. That's true. you know. Come on, kids what were watching. Go to the mall. Yeah. yeah, they were gonna go to the mall and get an Orange Julius, and then they, you know, they were gonna watch movies on VHS, maybe you know, Skinamax flicks late night and cable. You know, I mean, there's not a lot going on at this time, 1990. Yeah, you could be like me and my friends and just get together and watch black exploitation films. Yeah, well, you're weirdos. <laughs> 
So, so I, I kind of think that Harry is acting as the, uh, maybe not the best guidance counselor in the world, but definitely a guidance counselor and definitely doing a lot of things that the people at the school are not doing. And he's answering the questions and addressing the issues that these kids actually want to ask and get answered. And he's able to do it with the anonymity of the microphone, uh, though he does reach out and, and call people quite often, which I found to be good as well. Though I'm always curious how his voice modulator works on the phone and stuff, but I'm not going to get into the scientific stuff about that. Yeah, don't get into that. No. The um, See, the thing for me is, um, for him as a guidance counselor, is that by showing up the hypocrisy of the the adults, he's setting forth a new sort of philosophical idea for going forward. Like, for example, the... Um, this, this to me also is not only a, a, a condemnation of the failed baby boomers, but also at times the um, the the 1980s and into the you know into the 90s. The idea of the striving culture, the yuppies, and things like that, and especially when you look at the character that. Um, the, the Paige Woodward character and her father's like, oh, you got an interview with Yale and all this, and he's all excited, and she's you know kind of going along with it because that's what Dad wants, and then she eventually blows up all of her stuff in the microwave, and gets in front of the PTA or whatever and tells them that they're all you know they're all out of their minds and they need to chill and listen to their kids more, but um, that to me is really sort of looking at the idea of this uh, striving culture because I had a lot of friends in high school that um, their parents had pushed them towards certain things. Like, I remember one friend of mine um, going into the medical field and I was like, well, do you really want to do that? And it's like, well, my mom wants me to do it. And I'm like, well, it's your life. I'm like, what is the, you know, is your mom going to live your life for you? So I just remember that same sort of conversation when I was in high school where kids are trying to figure out, okay, well, what am I actually going to do after I get out of this place uh, with whatever I got in front of me? So it's, you know, I I think it is, um, you were talking about, does it still hold up? I think those aspects, those questions are still things that we're always, uh, kids, it doesn't really matter, you know, when are always asking the questions. I'm sure if you went back to ancient Greece, you'd find the same thing. Yeah, I believe Aristotle wrote about the same thing when he was like, God damn it, Plato just keeps picking on me. <laughs> That's one of the first uh, it gets better moments from Socrates. That's right. Yeah. And uh... With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, you know, Socrates, huge fan of the cock ring. I mean, just wore it all the time. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> you know, there's so much dick imagery in here that it's just funny. There's so much uh, sort of ridiculous male sexuality, too, just sort of this idea of swagger. But, of course, at the same time, as you said with Mark, he's not the most confident guy. Right. He, you know, he even reminded me a lot of, like, Superman, where his hair even seems to change when he's on the mic, and he takes off the glasses and everything. So he definitely makes even, like, a, a physical transformation when he's on the air. It's interesting that he's on the radio, he's playing music, but we really don't get a whole lot of him playing music, more of him talking. And I guess it would be kind of boring to just do a whole lot of like musical montages as people are sitting there listening. But I definitely, of course, appreciated the soundtrack to this quite a bit. And I was very surprised when I was rewatching the film again today and like, oh yeah, I forgot that you know, Titanium Exposé is in this or Heretic or some of these great songs that, you know, it's just like, oh, oh, yeah. So it was such a good soundtrack at the time. Yeah. Then the thing talking about the soundtrack that kind of threw me off for years. And uh, for some reason, I never bothered to read the end credits, um, maybe because it was on VHS and it was hard to read. Um, but even those opening credits were kind of hard to read that red text and stuff. Yeah. I was like, what is their role? Yeah. yeah. But, um, for a long time, I didn't know. Um, I didn't know it was Leonard Cohen. Um, I mean, I bought the soundtrack. You would have thought that because because the soundtrack didn't have the Leonard Cohen tracks on it. It had Concrete Blonde's version of Everybody Knows, which is a more up uh, version, and it's expurgated. There's like half the song isn't on there. Like they cut a bunch of stuff off it. But I didn't bother to look at the you know the writing credit for the song. So stupid me. But it took from when I saw this movie probably in 92 until about 96 before I finally figured out who Leonard Cohen was. And it was because I had a friend of mine who um, he was a couple years older than me, and we were in a community college play together. We went to his house to hang out, and he put on uh, I'm Your Man, the Leonard Cohen album, and Everybody Knows came on. And I said, holy fuck i'm like i've been trying to figure out who this is for years because i didn't know who it was and to be honest and this is going to show how ridiculous i was in high school i actually thought it was i thought he was a black singer because he had this really deep voice <laughs> and and real soulful voice i go that's got to be a black dude or something and um you know because that's just where my mind was thinking when i was like 14 you know kind of like for a long time i thought david clayton thomas of blood sweat and tears was a black guy but um, for some reason, I thought he was a soul singer. And uh, once I found that out, by the time I was, you know, 18, uh, I just became a huge Leonard Cohen fan. And everybody knows, and the other one that's in here, If It Be Your Will, off uh, various positions is also a great record and a great song. So um, it's kind of interesting how Leonard Cohen plays in the background in here. And I think in a way is kind of this, maybe this generational um link between the folks and the kids in that you have uh cohen who came about in the in the 60s and then he was doing this stuff in the 80s into the 90s and then in in another way if you look at some of the other songs that are in there you talked about uh, kick out the jams with henry rollins and bad brains um, of course originally put out in 1969 by the MC5, our hometown boys. So that, to me, could be another sort of generational link, although done in a different way. And that's the thing that I see the film, like I talked about before, is this um, kind of like punks looking at the boomers and going, eh, 
what did you do? Right. You know. Yeah, and it wasn't just that knee-jerk rejection, you know, that uh, like the uh, up, you know, British punks in '77 would have had, you know, with the the damn hippies and everything. It was much more of like these are now our parents rather than these are just some older kids kind of thing. So, yeah, there was that really nice kind of look back, look back in anger <laughs> with uh, what. What have our parents done? And they seem to have just been uh, doing the same thing as their grandparents. Yeah. And, I mean, I think you kind of find the same thing even um, within uh, the American punk scene in the 70s where it was like, all right, our folks bought into the uniformity of the suburbs and then we rejected it. You know, or uh, we couldn't, we, um, you know, people I talked to when I was doing the book, which had a lot to do with with sort of this uh, people that grew up in the punk era, they were like, look, you know, um, I, when I was in high school, Watergate happened, Nixon happened, all that stuff happened. So that made me go, well, all politicians are lying to us. Vietnam was just ending, you know, and just saw how that thing just kept going on and on. So, so there was this sort of like, you know, our parents screwed us. So I guess maybe every generation looks at, um, the younger generation looks at their parents and says, you screwed us. So, um, how did the how did the Gen Xers screw the uh, millennials? I guess is the is the next question. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure we did something wrong. I don't know what yet though. Uh, we didn't put enough stuff out on YouTube to be remixed these days. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, the whole thing of Mark's father being involved with the school i didn't really get that for the longest time until at the end when suddenly he's at that pta meeting it's like oh okay is that your job and like i knew that mark had taken stuff from his dad's office and that he obviously was had confidential stuff from the high school but it's just that i kind of missed his presence at the school and everything so I almost think that that would have made it a little bit more powerful that he is not only rebelling against the system, but rebelling against his dad at the same time. But then his dad ends up being the cool dad at the end and helps take, take the principal down. Yeah, I think eventually what happens is the, the we get the idea that even though the boomers have sold out, there's still the spark in them and they can see it when something bad is happening, that they're willing to step up. Because I take it that maybe Crestwood would be 10 years older, 15 years older than him. So she might be the, you know, Korean War, World War II era, you know. So so he um, he's a little more, you know, to go, no, you're wrong, you know, grandma, you <laughs> know, so... He totally reminded me the, the the performance of Mark's dad reminded me of Gary Cole's performance in Office Space. Yeah, but not as drawn out as Lumberg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was the little glasses that helped out too. Right, but he did he, have some of those. Hmm. He actually yeah. he actually kind of looks like John Glover's character in Gremlins too. I, I can totally with, see that with as the well. clothing and the hair and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was kind of like the love child of Gary Cole and, and Glover. <laughs> and when they're talking about uh, Mark going back to see a psychiatrist, all I could think of was Mike from Suicidal Tendencies. <laughs> we got problems. Mark, uh, i got to ask you something. Uh, your mother and I have been talking, and, and uh, I guess we realized that... Mark, um, basically we thought that you might benefit from maybe seeing a psychiatrist. Is it that obvious? 
No, honey, of course not. We think you're perfect, but it just seems that here you're so sad and lonely all the time. And we just want you to feel good about yourself. You had friends in New York, hon. Are you trying to meet people here at all? It was never... I, I know this sounds stupid, Mark, but have you ever just, like, walked up to a girl here and said hi? Look, the girls here are... are they're different. I, I can't talk to them. How are they different? Listen, Mark, I was talking to your English teacher today, oh. and... She... Oh, come on, Dad, please. It's, it's creepy enough around there without you snooping around. And she says that you've got a, a great promise as a writer, but that you're having trouble concentrating. So when is Johnny going to concentrate, huh? Get happy, get a girlfriend, and, and then write a, write a bestseller, huh? Fine, you don't listen, you don't talk to me, you don't talk to anybody, you hate everything. I can't talk to you people, and I'm certainly not going to a shrimp. Listen, Mark, everybody's got problems, not just you. But you're not going to solve them if you don't communicate them. You've got to talk to somebody. <sighs> okay, he's gone. He's gone back downstairs. I'm sitting in my room. My mom and my dad came in. They pulled up the chair and they sat down. They go, Mike, we need to talk to you. I go, okay, what's the matter? They go, me and your mom, we noticed this lady has been having a lot of problems. And you've been going off for no reason. And we're afraid you're going to hurt somebody. And we're afraid you're going to hurt yourself. So we decided that it would be in your best interest if we put you somewhere where you can get the help that you need. And I go, wait, what are you talking about? We decided my best interest. Exactly. <laughs> and he does, he's, I can't remember, he is drinking Pepsi in the opening. They're talking about he's drinking a Pepsi, a cher wild cherry Pepsi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this movie has its own sort of uh, place in terms of product. Like yeah. I, I talked about blackjack gum at the top, but yeah, there's the wild cherry Pepsi thing and then um, blackjack gum. So yeah, so there's at least references to a couple things that are in the that are in the culture. It's no surprise that all of the authorities, most of the authorities, are complete boobs. So when it comes to tracking down Mark, because we know that that's where this is going to lead, is the authorities want to shut him down. So the school wants to shut him down. The police want to shut him down. Eventually, the FCC wants to shut him down. And nobody can find this guy. And it's up to Nora to be the investigator. And she goes through and, and is very uh, good at doing her job as far as investigating, like even like bringing out the, uh, a paper and circling who she thinks is going to be, you know, Harry and everything. And it isn't until a little bit later on that she figures out who it is. And I have to say she, she does it pretty easily and he cops to it fairly quickly as well. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things that there's like, if the folks would have went in the basement more often, they would have figured this out. I mean, they bought him the set anyway, because he talks about it in one of the monologues where you see, I never planned it like this. My dumb dad got me this shortwave radio set so I could just speak to my friends back east. But I couldn't reach anybody. 
thought I was talking to nobody. I, I imagine nobody listening. Maybe I imagine that one person out there. Anyway. One day I woke up and I realized I was never going to be normal. So I said, fuck it. I said, so be it. And happy Harry Hardon was born. If they would have had the internet, it would have been like, my dad got me this computer so that I could chat with my friends back east, you know. So um, so he buys him this radio set. So there are certain things that could have solved the mystery quicker, but then you wouldn't have the story. So uh, let's not try to think about that too much. It's kind of the opposite of hackers, because they move uh, the Zero Cool out from wherever he's at to New York, and then he meets up with his hacker friends and stuff, so... Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that being a uh, a good double feature. There you go. All right, <laughs> I'll still watch this twice instead of Hackers once. But that's, what? That's just me. There's no Matthew Lillard in this film. Come that's, on, that's fine. I can deal with. Um, Any movie goes better with Matthew Lillard, especially a teen movie. I I like him. He's a good actor, but you know, pump up it's the volume. Funny. Guy's got to be over fifty years old. I bet you, you know, he could still pull off a teen movie pretty well. <laughs> Matthew Broderick can still play teens. <laughs> Get those guys and Michael J. Fox in one movie, just playing teens, and nobody's questions it whatsoever. Right? That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Poor Michael J. Fox with his Parkinson's and stuff, and everybody's yeah. just like, "Yeah, whatever." Like nobody says a word about it. No, no, not at all. <laughs> hey, shaky, get in here. Sorry, I thought they were going to do a um, like a Thelma and Louise ending to this. I couldn't remember how it ended. Uh-huh. I thought for sure like they were going to be driving around. They're, eventually, they they get in a jeep and they've got the equipment in the jeep and they're running from the FCC and everything. And I thought for sure they're just going to shoot off into a canyon and then it would freeze frame and that'd be the end of the film. See, it is a downer for our hero because it's a very big downer. Yeah, which is but in the end, you realize that the revolution is more than one person. So this is the thing. Because in the end, like the opening, there is kind of a bookend with, um, in the beginning, it's him over darkness and then the credits. And then in the end, there's all of these voices out there and you hear them sort of stacked and edited together on top of each other. Hi, everybody. This is Amy at 97FM in Springfield. And my show is Radioactive. Can anyone out there hear me? Sick of silence, let it out. This is Katie. Ethan from LA, I'm 16, and I'm here to but I'm not violence. sweet. Are you if running I'm the future, streets? Call the real runaway hotline. KCAT Los Gatos, California. This is I am. Are you? This is no protection. I'm from New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Turn on the truth. And so that really says to me is that although you may, you know, go down for the cause, your inspiration goes forward. So. I think that that is uh, actually a hopeful ending in the end. Maybe not necessarily for him. I'm sure he ended up getting in, you know, some serious trouble, but hey, you know, so be it. Mark Hunter was killed in jail. <laughs> Just like the title card at the end of uh, American Graffiti or something. <laughs> yeah, or the title cards at the end of um, National Lampoon's Animal right. House. Yeah. Killed by his own men. Killed by his own men in Vietnam, yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> Hey, Niedermeyer. 
All right, we're going to take a break and then play an interview with the writer and director of Pump Up the Volume, Alan Moyle, after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. All right, man. It's time. It's time. Are we ready for the list? The list. So we all made this list earlier. We sat around. Maybe got a, maybe got a little too high. Well, you making know, this list. We, we did get too high because we only made half the list. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Body count. 
the mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. Midnight Matinee presents the beloved musical, John and Tony Die at the End, featuring all the hits, Amerisauce, the cop and beg him to take me to the emergency room to pump my stomach, to bring in an exorcist, to go- Miss Morris, Miss Morris, um, I really don't think, Miss Morris, one head, one heart, I was aiming for his heart, but yeah, I did get him. I feel pretty soy sauce. Gee, Detective Appleton. Now you're getting high, partner. On the soy sauce. It's got you. And bestiology. Up until this point, our histories were identical. Bestiology. John and Tony die at the end. Available on Midnight Matinee at the stroke of midnight, Friday, November 13th on WFMU 91.1 FM and streaming at WFMU.org. Be there or be Korok. Available on a track. All hail Korok. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody uh, Our tastes are broad. We, we have uh, interest in all kinds of stuff. I mean, my favorite uh, film director is Luis Buñuel, um, but I also have a, a love for the film that I'm calling to talk to you about today, which is one of your movies. So, and, which is which movie? Uh, Pump up the volume. Really, not Empire. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay, good. So, All right, good. Yeah. So that's a um, an unsung movie, in that it flopped when it opened, and um, yeah, I, I, I suppose there's a core audience for it somewhere, right? Well. You know, there's two things related to it now that I look back on it, and I have to, I guess, give you the uh, the credit or the blame, is for the last 14 years I've worked in radio, and also the movie introduced me to Leonard Cohen. So uh, I, I have to give you nods on both of those, I think, mm, to a certain extent. Mm. So it influenced your career, because you uh, saw the movie and decided you wanted to be behind a mic. I I think maybe. Uh, when How I old a, are you, uh, Rob? 37. So that was, the timing is about right, right? You saw the movie when you were 10? Yeah, it was about, yeah, it was in my teen years. I saw it on video, and like I said, it had a, a pretty big impact on me. And for a while, I couldn't figure out um, who sang Everybody Knows. And ah, then, well, it, there's two people who sing it. Right. As you've figured out, right? Yeah. And I had no idea about Leonard Cohen, so I have to thank you for introducing me to him. Mm. He almost didn't make it into the movie because um, I wrote the I wrote the movie with uh, that song in mind, and because I knew him because I'm from Montreal, and because my my first wife was a record is a recording engineer and she worked with him, and so um, I wanted that song for that spot, 
Then the studio said it's too dreary to open the movie because they wanted the movie to be more pop. And uh, so we had it covered by Concrete Blonde. And then the Concrete Blonde was more rock and rolly, as you know, right? And um, or more rock anyway. And then in the end, Bob Shea, the, the owner of the studio, I played him both. And he said, look, we'll have, um, we'll have Concrete Blonde on the album, but let me have Leonard on the, um, in the movie. And then we'll use them both. And, um, and basically later we buried Concrete Blonde in the, in the movie, but she's prominent in the, uh, in the album. Does any of that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes sense to me because I grew up listening to the soundtrack record, and I was always like, why didn't they put this other version on here? And, you know, it was... Yeah, well, it's lucky it just got into the movie, right? It uh, was almost didn't, it almost didn't make it into the movie, but uh, Bob was, threw me a bone at the last minute. Okay, so uh, what can I do for you? What are your what are your questions? I'm happy to talk with you, and I'm uh, thrilled that you're doing a piece on uh, Pump. Yeah. So you know, just to to start off, let's let's go back to the beginning for you. You said Montreal, and and there was a film that I saw recently. I think it was called East End Hustle was the title of it, and your name was on there. So you you started out in Montreal doing low budget film. Yeah, um, the guy who did East End Hustle was a guy I did two low-budget 16-millimeter blow-up movies with. One was called Montreal, Maine, and one was called uh, The Rubber Gun Show. And, um, the, and we did them both. We did everything on them, writing, directing, everything, although Frank, quote-unquote, directed Montreal, Maine, and I, quote-unquote, directed The Rubber Gun Show. And um, the... Uh, and they're a legendary little, uh, legendary little Montreal before their time, kind of like Mike Lee movies. Do you know Mike Lee movies? Mm-hmm. You know who Mike Lee is? Of course you do, right? So they were exactly that, but 20 years earlier. And, um, and uh, Canadians know about them, but America, they never got distributed, really. But they started our careers, so, you know, who's to... And uh, a lot of the... A lot of the use of music, i.e., instead of scoring used songs, uh, was learned on those two movies. Is that sort of was your entry to filmmaking, or did you have something earlier than that? Did you go to school or anything? No, no. I oh, I tried to go to school, film school at McGill. I had taken a break from school. I did one year of McGill, then I traveled the world and ended up in New York, where I worked as a PA on some movies, even as an actor in a movie called Joe. And, um, and then, I, then I decided, oh, this is fun. I want to go to film school. So I went back to Montreal to McGill to see if I could enter the film uh, department, which was nascent at that point. And they said, basically, no, you, uh, you can't. Uh, you don't have the prerequisites. You have to do another year of normal classes in order to get into our prestigious film class, which was ironic because at this point I'd worked on more movies than the professors, right? But they said no, luckily. And so then I said, well, I'll just, I'll just teach myself by making the movies, which turned out to be more fun. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. Well, you talked about Joe. Is that the, the Peter Boyle film, the John Avildsen movie? Yeah, I'm in that movie as a young man. 
I get killed in the end. I'm one of the little hippies that gets killed in the farmhouse. But mostly, I worked as a PA on it, and that changed my life. Which is interesting, because I have another friend who worked on that, and that was Lloyd Kaufman, who now runs Troma. Yeah, well, Lloyd Kaufman's a friend of mine, and I worked on his movies, his crazy movies. And Lloyd and I were the same age and the same era. I didn't like his aesthetic taste, but uh, we were all young and, and doing whatever we could. I've acted and PA'd and, and crewed on a lot of his early movies. Lloyd, is he still around? Is he still making those movies? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's still doing it. Good for him. I know, I know his expressions. All righty then, right? <laughs> you know that one? All righty then. What, uh, well, what's another one? Um, uh, all righty. I'll think of it before the end of this conversation. Now, he's, uh, he's a wonderful eccentric guy you should do a movie uh, a piece on all on him and all his movies right they're all of a piece aren't they yeah we did a few of them already and we also had him on uh to talk uh saturday night fever because he had worked he was originally hired on with the avildsen crew for that until john avildsen got replaced by john batham that's an interesting story isn't it yeah that's a good one <laughs> and um but i think he was too young to have been creatively involved he was probably a pa at that age right was he or what was it was, remind me he was doing locations for that and he also okay, did locations, locations for rocky as okay, well good yeah. yeah fantastic yeah well so, if you see him say hi to him for me yeah so you know you had mentioned rubber gun show and in there you're both an actor and also writer and director and you know at the time um, you know, how was that for you in, in terms of balancing that ability, you know, to be in front and, you know, you didn't have a video tap then like you do now. We had a, a poor man's video tap in that we shot the whole movie or lots of it on these Sony porta packs, half inch black and white video which we got from McGill, which we borrowed or liberated from McGill. So we had these porta packs. This is so before your time, it's, it's, it's laughable. Um, Sony tried to popularize a certain camera, and you carried the battery and the machine on your, uh, in a square knapsack on your back, and you had the camera in your hands on a cable. And uh, they blew our minds because they were so convenient and movable. So we got, managed to borrow a couple from <clears throat> the film society at McGill. I mean, the film department at McGill. And um, later they accused me of stealing one, but actually we returned it. But the uh, point being, we shot many of the scenes. The most, let me go back a bit. The most expensive part of making movies in those days was the Kodak film because Kodak was the only company that wouldn't give you a break. You know, we couldn't beg, borrow, or steal the, the, the stock. We borrowed the bath at the National Film Board. We borrowed the, the, a lot of post-production at the film board because we had friends, not at the top of the film board, but in the middle echelons of the National Film Board who were supporting us and giving us, for example, editing rooms at night, after the, after the National Film Board guys punch a clock at four in the afternoon, we would go in and uh, work at night on the, uh, on the steam backs. You don't even know what a steam back is, do you? No, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I worked one <Okay>. before. <laughs> so anyway, stock, the Kodak stock was the most expensive thing. 
So we couldn't afford to um, just shoot and shoot and shoot. Well, it was too, we couldn't afford we couldn't afford the stock. So what we would rehearse the scenes on these Sony porta packs. Oh wow, Sony thirty four hundred porta pack. Look it up; it's amazing. And we shoot uh, difficult scenes with that as rehearsal, and then um, and then shoot the the thing with the valuable Kodak negative. And even then, it was tricky because uh, on Rubber Gun Show, the the we we shot at a rate a ratio of two to one. In other words, the entire movie was three hours of actual negative film, and then we edited it down to ninety minutes, hour and a half, ninety minutes. So that's two to one. So and then like then we're in Germany showing it at film festivals, and they're saying, "Why did you do this? Why did you do that?" And most mostly the answer was, "Well, that was a mistake. We would have done it better if uh, if we'd had more film or more skill." One of the people you worked with on that was Stephen Lack, and I was wondering if you could tell me about how people, you met him. One of the people, Central guy, right. Central. If you're going to do a piece on, um, well, you're not doing a piece on Rubber Gun. Um, he's central to to the Rubber Gun show. It's basically we started with his personality, and then wrote the script around him. And he's got he's got a uh, a credit as scriptwriter, but he never lifted a pencil. It was all just us uh, listening to him talk and then transcribing. Do you know what I mean? He he wrote it in the sense that it's him, but he didn't sit down and uh, write a screenplay because that would be too that would take too much concentration and too much. Uh, it's not his style. Do you know what I mean? And uh, but he's the genius behind that movie. Both of those movies, Rubber Gun and Montreal, Maine. I mean, in in Montreal, Maine, he plays a small part, and then we built his small part. We spun it off into a whole movie for him. One of the films you did later was Times Square, and I know that the version that came out to theaters was not your original vision for it. Um, how did that sort of impact you to, to have it recut? Well, that was no fun, obviously. It's, re- it's a story about two young girls who are going to be gay when they grow up they're finding their way into their sexuality and then their their beingness in the movie and then the studio got nervous about the the gay element and cut out all the scenes um in which they kiss basically in my opinion ruined the movie so uh i don't know how that happened but um there's a similar story one of my favorite movie all time is a movie called performance do you know it and you know it sat on the shelf for 10 years because the wife of the distributor, after seeing a screening of it, said it made her physically sick. <laughs> Isn't that rich? And uh, that's, I think the same thing happened with us. The wife of the distributor said um, Times Square made her sick, so they dumped the mo- so they cut it. And I, of course, the, my director's cut was over, and I was pushed off by then. And I had no control over it. And, um, yeah, it's a shame those things happen. And, uh, and my gay girlfriends can still enjoy the movie because they can see the subtext. They can, see, they can fill in the blanks. But it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie? It almost sounds like what you were saying in a way like pre-code Hollywood or even code Hollywood where they started putting the censorship in and all that subtext is in there if you know what you're looking for. Yeah, but this was, yeah, yeah, a little bit like that. 
Yeah. Well, they couldn't cut it all out. I mean, the girls fall in love in the opening scenes in the hospital, but they don't actually sleep together. And by the way, they didn't, they didn't go down on each other. There's nothing like that. It was very sweet, but still scary to, um, to people that are afraid of homosexuality, right? And uh, way before its time, and it's a shame, yeah. you know? But uh, let's see. Yeah, the gay, the gay girls can still enjoy the movie, but if they could only see the, the way that it should have been... I'm only talking about three or four scenes also, but nasty. Has there ever been an option for you to, to get those back, to put it see, back that together? that was pre-digital, and we, we don't have... I'm sure the, uh, the outtakes are thrown out. Stigwood's company is dead. I thought, I, I thought because Stigwood is gay... I thought I would be in good shape by making the movie with him because a couple other places wanted it. But I thought, I'm going to go with the crazy gay guy on the yacht and the coke and everything because he's going to protect the subject matter. But, you know, these gay guys that are in the, still in the closet, uh, that's tricky. So he didn't protect the gay content in the end, as he should have. I blame him. He's dead now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Stigwood, or is he alive on life support somewhere? Yeah, it says he's Robert Stigwood. Says he's still alive. He's eighty-one, I guess, but I don't know what he's doing now. He did so much alcohol and drugs. He's probably just uh, being tube-fed. And um, anyway, that's that little story. Yeah. What but, movie are we talking about, young man? I'm, I'm we've getting. Gone to all, we've gone through all the movies, including Joe. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, we're we're getting there you now. You love movies, don't you? We're we're just big movie fans here. That's why it's the projection yeah. booth. You know, performance like... is the movie that I would like you to see. Do a piece on the best movie ever made ever. Most people haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, you're easy to talk with. You know why? Quick quiz. Why are you so easy to talk with? Because I know the work and I enjoy it. <laughs> you love movies. Yeah, you you impress the, the 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 interview e with love of the work. Yeah, fantastic. There was a ten year gap between Times Square and Pump Up the Volume, and uh, was just going to ask, you know, what did you do in that time, or did you find it hard after that experience to get your well, next film placed? Well, I was depressed place? after Times Square, and I basically quit for a while. And did various things, like uh, I lived in Greece for three years. I did, uh, I went on vacation. Every time I got disappointed in the business, I uh, turned my other, I turn away, and then something brings me back. Uh, the latest episode of being disappointed in a movie is uh, the last movie I made called um, Weirdsville. Canadian movie about drug addicts in the snow and I think it's fucking brilliant and so does uh, and so did Hollywood Reporter but it went straight to video 
in a in a blunt in a distribution blunder that producer and I did, and um, and then I thought, fuck it, you spend a year making a movie, and then it opens in Walmart, and uh, oh god, it's not it's not even a movie for the Walmart audience. It's a complete art movie of the kind that could only probably be made in Canada. They wouldn't be make those kind of movies here anymore. And uh, so, you know, fuck it. I might as well go and live in Vietnam and have do something different, you know? Although I, I, I do the odd thing here and there. I'm, I'm 68. I'm basically sitting here, although I happen to be sitting in an editing room. I'm looking at an editing bay right now um, because of a little home movie I'm making. But, um, yeah, these gaps, everyone asked me about the gaps, and uh, there are a lot of gaps in my life. I'm supposed to be going to Ikea right now with my wife uh, instead of working on my career with you, but uh, and, but I'd rather be doing this with you than going to Ikea, believe me. So, uh, anyway, I'm rambling. Rob, stop me when I ramble, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, Just let... interrupt. Just say, go to your questions. So... Did that? I have no idea what you want. So, so did that sort of depression and and all of that feeling? Is that where uh, "Pump Up the Volume" came out of? Which I heard the original title was "Lean on Me." Originally, is that true? "Lean on Me" was one title at one point, but that was a song. "Lean on Me," and I didn't want to use that song. I mean, it was a title that we thought about. I wrote it as Radio Death because it a, I wrote it as a much darker movie about a kid who was depressed and was thinking about committing suicide and then starts this little radio uh, show broadcasting to maybe 20 people discussing the pros and cons of killing yourself as an unhappy teenager and then all the different ways you could do it. And he has so much fun talking about it and telling his audience, stay tuned because tonight might be the night that you, that I kill myself on the air. That kind of, that was really mordant humor. Now we, we sense that he's having too much fun to actually do it. He's not really depressed. He's just, he's going to be as Dan Savage says much better when he gets to university, you know, it gets better. But, um, so from this dark little movie, which I wrote and then a Canadian company, actually not even a company, a guy, Sandy Stern, the producer, the producer of um, a pump, crucial, crucial person in the making of the movie, found the script, which was probably too dark to be made anywhere, and said, why don't you just make this movie more uh, palatable, and then we could get it made. And we did. And then we ended up naming it after a song in the end anyway, Pump Up the Volume, which... Uh, by then, that was a group decision with the studio and, in the, and, and a distribution decision. And by then, I had been Hollywoodized enough to, uh, to say, okay, you know, it's not the worst movie, it's not the worst title, but it's uh, still can't, and it, doesn't anyone know that's the name of a song that's out already? And then, of course, the studio people are saying, yes, of course, that's it. And I'm saying, oh, okay, that's what you think. Maybe you're right. Well, as for the character, how much of Happy Harry Hardon uh, is your voice, is you and your thoughts on where you were at that time? I would say uh, pretty much all me, but well, the earliest voice of Happy Harry was darker, much darker than me. 
And then the the modified Happy Harry was uh, uh, less depressed and more self-amused. And people who know me would say I'm self-amused and uh, uh, there's no way I'm going to commit suicide. But, you know, I'm happy to discuss whether someone else could, should do it or not. I was discussing that with my mother last week. She's 95. I'm going to help her. She says, get me the good drugs. I don't want to vomit. I want to, I want to go. I want to do a Jackie Kennedy. You know? She's completely conscious and smart lady who, uh, who is depending on me to get her top-level heroin so that she can float out when she decides to do it. And, uh, and that's suicide. I've got no qualms with that. What about you? No. I think if you're at a point where that's what you feel you have to do physically or, you know, mentally, I mean, that's a choice you have to make for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's sad when a young person... I had a couple of friends kill themselves in high school. It was sad and mysterious, and you never knew... That was before anyone was gay or anything, you know, there was before. So you don't know why they did it. And that's shocking. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's terrible when a young person does it. But it's fascinating, too. So, personally, I believe in an afterlife. I have a lot of proofs with myself that, um, that, that I don't die, only my body dies. So it doesn't bother me as much as it does other people. You know, when you were putting the script together and then started casting for it, um, who were some of the people that came in who maybe you had in mind before you had Christian Slater? Such a small list of young people. And at that point, there was a guy called um, John Cusack, who I liked, and we sent him the script. And he liked the script, and he was kind enough to say... Uh, boy, if you'd gotten me a year earlier, I would have done it, but I've just played my last teenager, and he was getting too long in the tooth to play teenagers. And then we looked around, and there's this guy. I don't think the Heathers had come out yet, but but he'd been uh, something the cube, I forget that. And uh, he was a hot, young, cute guy. The problem was how to make him how to ugly him up a little bit so that it would be plausible that he didn't have a social life, you know? So those glasses, pathetic, eh? The glasses to make Christian Slater look like a loner. But um, it worked because it's all fantasy. Basically, the young girls want a totally handsome loner. Am I making any sense? I mean, it was a perfect casting, don't you think? Oh, I. you know, the thing that I look at when I look at him is... He reminds me, especially in that period, of a young Jack Nicholson. And I could see this yeah. if it was like 30 years before, it would have been yeah. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And, now on the, and on the set, he would say, uh, he'd do a take, he'd say, Alan, is it too Jack? Is it too Jack? <laughs> Meaning, you know, cause he couldn't help channeling Jack Nicholson. You know, I said, doesn't matter. Jack Nicholson's brilliant. Right? Just be yourself. Right? But he did get uh, that comparison to him was odious. And how was he? Did you know during those days? How was he on the set as a as an easy, actor? Easy, easy, easy. Because he did, he wasn't neurotic at all. He's not like um, offering suggestions. He's not anxious about the material. You know, he didn't. He didn't have any creative ideas that could get in the way 
of what what I wanted. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't saying, oh, can I play it with a mustache? You know, he was, uh, or uh, as one actor once told me in the middle of the movie, can I, can I, can I, ha- can my character have a mustache? I said, we've shot half the movie. Or what are you, out of your mind, right? And uh, Christian wasn't like that at all. He didn't improvise one syllable. He wasn't interested. And, um, and my comfort level for improvisation is very, way high. So providing the information is, is conveyed, he could change 80% of the words if he wanted, but he wasn't interested. He's uh, just a sweet guy there to do the work and make each take seem alive as often as he wanted to do it. But we didn't have the money to do it 80 times or even eight times. But uh, yeah, that was fantastic. You know, I mean, he wasn't a trained actor. Uh, in the morning, I'd have to have breakfast with him and go over the lines with him because he's not like rehearsing the scene with an acting coach the night before and driving himself crazy. He's just a, he's just insouciant, blithe kid. who's was uh, just at the perfect time in his life. I remember exactly what he used to eat while we, um, while we rehearsed the lines, which is a soup made of maple syrup and crushed up bacon. So like a stew, maple syrup, bacon stew. And he'd eat that with a spoon while I had to watch. And, you know, it was quite tasty, but the amount of sugar, you know. Can you picture Christian at 16 uh, tucking into his breakfast and smiling and uh, being read the lines? Cute, eh? Well, you know, maple syrup. Maybe he was trying to play to the Canadian in you in some way. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe he just knew that the sugar would jack him up. Oh, yeah, and they claim he's a drug addict and an alcoholic. No, he was a 16-year-old boy, right, who didn't do as, who uh, who drank, but he was an alcoholic, not in my opinion, anyway. But later on, I, I didn't follow him. But uh, at the time where they said he was, uh, um, he drank too much, I just want to say from my perspective, he drank only as much as the average teenager drank. And that thing where he kicked, fought with a cop, he was climbing over a fence and they grabbed his foot and he kicked himself free. And then the cop said, oh, he kicked me. So anyway. When you were writing the script, had you had any previous experience either listening or with pirate radio in some way? I was interested in pirate radio because uh, of those offshore abandoned oil rigs in England broadcasted without any FCC approval to England and they were able to be a little bit naughtier than uh, so probably that was an inspiration but basically I was interested in a kid who had a voice and wasn't really interested about how many people were listening he had this weird kind of invented broadcasting. He wasn't even, in my opinion, the first guy, the first, first version I wrote, the guy didn't even know whether he was broadcasting a block or 10 blocks, you know? And he just wanted to talk on the radio about about his own. He was like a vlog. Do you know what I mean? Right. And then the ending of the movie where all the little voices come in. Can you, can you, 
can you picture the last scene in the movie with the people, the kids signing on from all over the world? Right. Okay, that that was uh, when I finished the movie. That was my favorite moment in the movie, and it's it's, it's even while we're editing it, it still raised the hair on my arm to see these kids signing in with their own little uh, stations. You know, hi, I'm Carolyn, and my and my station is called blah blah. Okay, so that was the central idea, and it's kind of lost because it's the last second in the movie. But um, and now look at the now look at the internet, right? And people keep saying to me, "Why don't you redo the movie?" But the internet has uh, redone the movie. There's no place for the that movie and that story anymore. It's a time capsule. Would you agree? I mean, it speaks to me because radio is part of my youth. So I don't know a kid who grows up today and everything is on demand, not in that sort of sense of stumbling upon things, which we all did, where we stumbled on songs, we stumbled on stations, we became familiar with a DJ in our neighborhood that played a certain song, that kind of thing. Oh, God, I remember. I remember the guy, I've been so young in a radio up in Canada, and the guy would say, we have... uh, we have Perry Como here to sing you the song. And I thought Perry Como was in the studio, right? I didn't even know. I mean, that's how young. I might have been six years old. But I was thinking, how did they get Perry Como all the way over there? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But now, let's say that someone asked you to remake Pump Up the Volume using the Internet. Where would you begin? I mean, I I think it would be like you had mentioned. Maybe it would be uh, he's a vlogger now who is in you know behind a screen or something. You know, like yeah, the well, anonymous. that's obvious. That's like, obvious. But yeah. how would you make it interesting? There are what, what there are like maybe fifty million vloggers out. How would you make his voice more interesting than uh, the other people? It'd be very. Ter- if you come up with an idea, call me because uh, there's people who want to make Pump Up the Volume 2. My favorite idea is Christian Slater, 25 years later, he's had, he's had a hard road, and he's disappointed, and, and he, he went from being a skeptical and depressed teenager to having success to now he's a, he's a middle-aged man and is suicide and is... Uh, uh, suicidal again or uh, unhappy again. And uh, and I think Christian would play that role if I wrote it and presented it with him because he said, he said that he enjoyed making Pump. So, and that would be inter- that would be an interesting challenge for him. But I don't know, I don't have a salient idea for how that story would fit into the uh, the multiverse that we're, that, no, that we now find ourselves in. When you said that the the script was a little bit darker, how was it actually making it and working with New Line? Were they supportive of what you were trying to accomplish, or did you run into you had to do cuts and change things? Well, as I said, this brilliant producer, Sandy Stern, who developed, who was a development person, uh, who found the script and convinced me to make it more pop, he's the guy that changed the script and then New Line, New Line found the new script, which was post-Sandy Stern. And you should call him and talk to him because he's, 
if the Writers Guild had um, if the Writers Guild had a, a category for crucial writing done by a producer, the movie would not get made if we hadn't used these guys' ideas or something like that. But you know, the Writers Guild is very much against producers getting writing credits. So um, it's very hard. You know, they protect the original voice, the original writer. I don't know if you know anything about the Writers Guild. But the point is, uh, there's no category for Sandy's immense contribution to the to the story and to the script. If it hadn't been for him, the movie would never have been made. It was too, too indie, you know? It might have been made in Canada and uh, and like thousands of other Canadian movies, including Weirdsville, just gone into uh, the abyss. I'll give you his number. Call him and talk to him because he's a, he's a crucial player, more important than New Line. New Line was great. I mean, they uh, they always wanted they always wanted to please everybody instead of a few people. And I kept saying to them, "Look, I don't know how to make a good new movie, but I know how to make a bad movie, and that's try to please everybody." And they they would say, "Yeah, yeah, you're right," but still, uh, they were worried about reaching the largest possible audience. And I was interested in offending a small part of the audience so that the Alara, my my segment of the audience would be thrilled, and um, and even that wonderful scene where the girl takes off her sweater was argued about. You know, do you remember that scene? That scene? Oh yeah. I mean, when this was on VHS, and I was a kid, it was one of those that I probably watched several times a week. <laughs> It's no joke. It's no joke. It's like when I was a kid, there were certain movies that I was kind of obsessive about that I would watch over and over again, and this was one of them. And that's why it's such a, for me, such an honor to chat with you about it because you're the man that made it possible. Well, then that's fantastic. And then someday I'll tell you the story about how hard it was to get that scene shot and in the movie because Sarah Risher, who was my number one producer there, and a woman thought it was demeaning and, but more important, just completely implausible that a girl would take off her shirt on like the second date. And, um, and it had happened to me. It made a huge impression on me. This girl, I'm stumbling, you know, we're in the pleased to meet you stage and we're at night out in the woods and she just reaches behind her and pulls her sweatshirt over her head. And there she is. Uh, you know, uh, and that that happened to me. Of course, nobody believes me, but it did. And then, uh, and so the the compromise, classic studio think. She pulls the shirt off, but she's wearing a bra. Okay, so we shot it both ways. You know, one of the things that I'd be remiss not to ask you about because it comes up several times in the film is the um, preoccupation with cock rings. Does he say cock ring more than once? <laughs> it comes up a couple of times. Okay, that's that's weird. So I wore a cock ring once to to see what it would be like, but I uh, but I found it uncomfortable and weird. But uh, but it has a certain ring to it, you know, a cock ring, right? So the the guy and I doubt that that young happy hard on in Arizona or wherever it's taking place. I doubt that he has one. He just likes to be uh, naughty. Yeah. 
Well, I, I love one of the uh, students who's walking around going, well, what is it? I don't know. Maybe it's a ring with a cock on it. Yeah. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, so, but you know, so the, a cock ring, there's a lot of things in it like uh, eat your peas with a knife and stuff like that that don't make any sense really. Um, but just, I don't know. It's just life, isn't it? Right. You were saying earlier that when it came out, it, it didn't, it didn't do all that well. So, like, what was, you know, what do you remember about that? Were you up against another film? Uh, they I just thought it would do it? well because the reviews were so good. The reviews were excellent, and then it opened with a thud. It could have been the competition that weekend or whatever, or maybe there wasn't enough publicity or whatever, but. Uh, the studio and everybody that were on the team was a bit surprised by how little business it did. And in those days, the business on the opening weekend was crucial. And uh, so then it was considered a flop by New Line, although not a disaster, because the reviews were excellent. And the execs who worked on it well, thought, well, we did a good job on this movie. That's a movie I'm proud to stand behind. Do you know what I mean? And then, uh, but for some reason, it didn't capture the imagination. And neither did Empire Records. And then over the years, I guess, as you know, it developed a fan base. But the opening uh, wasn't very good. And again, I quit the business after that. And I went off to Timbuktu to do something else. And, um, you know, thinking, wow, this business is harder than I thought. Because it is a movie in which they did give me pretty much creative control. I didn't control the album, and maybe that's for the better, because the album did better than the movie. But of course, there's 40 cues in the uh, in the movie and only 12 on the album. So uh, Kathy Nelson at Universal, who was doing the album, um, that was her own world. Do you know what I mean? She controlled which songs would go on the album. Am I making any sense? And I controlled which songs would go in the movie. And so, classically, they put the cover for any, anybody, everybody knows, in the album, because it's more pop than Leonard Cohen, who was considered, uh, uh, I guess they considered it wouldn't help the album at all. So there's a lot of good songs in the movie that didn't make it on the album, and maybe should have, or woulda, coulda, shoulda, and who knows, but the album did quite well. And the movie did quite well in certain places like France. I flew there three times to talk to groups of avid teenage uh, amateur politicians who thought that it was a significant movie because in it. They thought, I had no idea that there was any politics in it. But, you know, the French are, you know, are different from us. <laughs> yeah, well... Like I said, I just watched it on VHS over and over again, and I could oh, probably beautiful. I could probably recite the film from memory to a certain extent. So, um, but it's it's like I said, it's always been one that I've enjoyed, and and I've taken up quite a bit of your time. But I just wanted to well, ask. Listen, you, I'm happy to talk with you again. I just have to go right now. I don't know what your deadline is, but you're such a pleasure to talk with that I will. Uh, I'm happy to reminisce with you because you've brought up some interesting stuff that I've forgotten about and you've made some connections in my mind but may I give you Sandy Stern's number oh of course and and um, 
You'll yeah. have to introduce yourself. You'll say, well, look, I just talked, the movies, uh, you saw any serious story about how that movie evolved uh, is, um, has Sandy Stern in the middle of it. And then when new, and then the small Canadian company, just to fill in the blanks, they, we had the movie ready to go and we were in pre-production in, um, in Toronto. And then the owner of that company informed me that he'd sold the script with me to New Line. And I was disappointed because I already, I don't know the people at New Line and I already know the people in the small company. And uh, I, we were all warmed up. We'd already had our fights. I knew exactly, you know, it's the friend, the enemy you know is better than the enemy you don't know. So I was resistant. And then New Line said, no, 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 Alan, we want you to direct it as well. And I got, I had meetings with them and got to know them a little bit. And then I, because I wanted a power base in this new company, I didn't want to be the only alone there. So I said, I'll do it if Sandy Stern can come across and be one of the producers. And they said, well, they said, of course, they didn't want him because they have their own producers, but they said, okay. And then he turned out to be very, very good producer for them. And, uh, and the, producer there, the producer they assigned became good friends with him, and it turned out to be a happy story. So Sandy went from being the guy that found the script and developed it to actually producing the script. And now he's doing, he's producing a Broadway play about it. And he'll tell you all about that. Wow. Did I say Broadway play? No, worse than that. A Broadway musical about it. it. But listen, I'm getting another call. Now's right. a good time to say goodbye. Cheers. But call me back, Rob, uh, if you need any more information and I'll make the time for you. But I have a, a name with the voice and the, and the project. Okay. Sure, bye-bye. Everybody knows the boat is sinking. Everybody knows that the captain lied. Everybody's got this broken feeling. Like the mama or the dog just died. Everybody's hands are in their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rose. Everybody knows. All right, we are back, and we're talking about Pump Up the Volume. Pump Up the Volume, which has a very interesting treatment. Usually a treatment I consider like 40, 50 pages, but the treatment of this film that I managed to find, 111 pages, nine pages short of being a two-hour film. Kind of crazy. I'd never seen a treatment that long. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting what the original title was. Yeah, uh, which... I think was used for another movie somewhere in the interim with, uh, was Morgan Freeman in it? Yeah. He played, um, the principal who was, uh, became an urban legend. What was it? He was in New Jersey or something. He was a principal who, um, turned around this, you know, rotting, decaying, um, school in the middle of the inner city and became rather well known for, you know, news stories or whatever that were, that came out. Yeah, so it was called Lean On Me. And uh, at that point, I think it was just like a few years north of Club Nouveau's cover of uh, Lean On Me. Um, So that would have been really kind of bad. Like, I'm sure he was thinking more like the Bill Withers version. But yeah, that Club Nouveau version is horrible. Lean On Me. We are not strong. 
Well, speaking of Mars, as you brought up in the first half, um, pump up the volume, Alan Moyle actually said in the interview that um, the title was changed to sort of capitalize on the fact of that song being well-known. Which, that song would not fit in this movie whatsoever. No. Not, not even the cool remix with Eric Bean Rakim and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. No. Nope. No. Though there's a lot of hip hop in here, and I kind of appreciated that. You know, I, I want to say we hear some what KRS One or something going on. There's no, some, it's some, ATL. It's above the law, which was a um, uh, a group that was signed to Ruthless by uh, Easy E and produced by Dr. Dre in the pre. Um, uh, split of NWA, and um, they have a really great song, you know, "Freedom of Speech," and it was on the soundtrack. So, so that's how I originally had heard of them. And uh, you know, they kind of uh, name check in the end all the all the members of uh, NWA. It was good that you know, the 1990 hip hop was still not necessarily you know like mainstream kind of stuff so it was very nice you know the, obviously we're nwa had already been around public enemy run dmc and all that kind of stuff but and we're we're post walk this way so we have had that introduction but it wasn't as commonplace as it is today right and this would be in the era um as a matter of fact you get a beastie boys track in the film uh mm -hmm. song off paul's boutique so this was before the beastie boys really started to uh mutate into a, uh the rock band that they originally started out as yeah god when that check your head album came out when i was in college it was just like that really blew the the lid i was just amazed by that mm -hmm. so it's um in terms of the treatment did you get a chance to read it I did. I did. And it's much darker, I would have to say. It's interesting to me, though. So there's there's a couple major differences. One is that uh, Cheryl is black. And we have, I don't think any, there's like one Asian guy at one point uh, in the film. And most of the folks are white. It is a very white suburban place. Yeah. And there's one black uh, parent at the PDA meeting. Right who claims to work with uh, gangs in the inner city, which to me, I go, why would you be in the school district? Because the way the school districts are built, um, at least where I grew up, uh, we didn't, you know, it was so sort of closed and small that, you know, unless he was just some guy who decided to stop by and tell him about, you know, how to beat up on gangs, I don't necessarily right. know how this guy ends up in this neighborhood, which, of course, at this time, since it was Arizona, uh, I believe they had already passed the um, anti-MLK bill, um, so there was no Martin Luther King holiday in Arizona, <laughs> so it's... Um, Nothing against listeners in Arizona, but uh, I guess during this period was rather uh, segregated. And, of course, we know that there's a uh, sheriff who lives there who loves uh, detaining and locking up uh, our friends from south of the border. I don't get it because Arizona, they are so right on when it comes to the whole rejection of daylight saving time. But then <laughs> – but then they do this stuff with yeah with MLK and with with uh, illegal immigrants and everything. It's just like, what? What is your problem? I mean, that yeah. almost makes me wonder if I'm in the wrong about daylight saving. Yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, you got to question yourself. I really, I mean, that's the the thing. I just kept tweeting at uh, Pr President Obama. I was just like, you know, you really gave me hope that we could get out of this dark age of daylight savings time, but. 
Unfortunately, we're still there, folks. Nope, nope. So anyway, going through the treatment. So uh, Cheryl's yeah. black. So Cheryl's black. And by the way, I was just picturing that guy driving along going, oh, look, a PTA meeting. Let me stop by. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because people just go to PTA meetings just for entertainment value. Yeah. I mean, well, they uh, have wakes that are going until after 10 o'clock at night as well, at right. least and, in this world. You know, and usually there's free coffee. So it's kind of like uh, kind of like that line in Fight Club, you know. It's, uh, it's cheaper than a movie and there's free coffee. So, <laughs> so Cheryl's black. Uh, <laughs> surprise, Cheryl's black. Uh, Paige uh, tries to commit suicide. She doesn't put her uh, her goods in the microwave, as far as I remember, and it's uh, she doesn't successfully commit suicide. Uh, the um, Nora is the one who writes the letter about her brother coming in at night and stuff, and then later on she says, "Oh, by the way, I have no brothers or sisters." Uh, and Mark actually is interested in her before she's interested in him. And he goes around and finds more about her and ends up putting a a note in her locker and all this kind of stuff. So I actually like it better that she's investigating him in the movie. And the other, the biggest change uh, I have to say is that uh, the, the guidance counselor, Mr. Deaver, he ends up killing himself. So it gets pretty dark. So we have two suicides and an attempted suicide in the treatment. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I didn't read the treatment, but my interview with Alan Moyle, he did state that it was a little bit darker than, uh, than what eventually made to the screen. Yeah. And eventually they do the thing with the Jeep and then they set up shop at a, um, like an old warehouse or something. And the cops are outside and they're tear gassing and all this kind of stuff. So it ends up being kind of a siege at the end of the thing, at the end of the script, though there is still that encouragement to go out and, you know, find your own voice on the radio and do this stuff yourself. You know what that kind of reminds me of actually? What's that? Is, um, and I know you probably don't like this and it's been years since I've seen it is uh, SFW. Oh, okay. Where there's sort of the, the kids take over the 7-Eleven and there's the whole siege and all that stuff. Have you ever seen the film Over the Edge? Mm, I can't say so. Oh, that's definitely one you should check out. That was, I think, a Jonathan Kaplan film from like the mid-70s. And it would never fly in a post-Columbine world these days. But it's very much these kids in the West, I want to say, in the suburb, nothing to do and they end up taking over the high school and it just gets crazy well it's like if yeah oh yeah yeah Yeah, that's another one you couldn't do in a post-columbine america either no so uh i was trying to think of other pirate radio movies to watch Mm -hmm. and i tried watching that pirate radio um it was called pirate radio or it was called the boat that rocked okay from 2009 with just an amazing cast i mean you know, Bill Nighy and uh, Nick Frost and Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, I, Richard uh, Brana and all this terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> I couldn't, Sorry. I turned it off after 20 minutes. It was Ouch. just like, wow, there is nothing here that's holding my interest whatsoever. Mm, that's sad. Yeah. But I have to say other pirate radio stations or other, you know, disc jockey movies tend to be a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those that, for me as a radio professional, they actually kind of get right. Um, there are radio movies that are terrible in terms of nobody talks like that on the radio, or uh, you know, they'll be inside the studio and there's actually music playing or something when they're on mic. Just like 
that doesn't happen. It's like dead silent in the studio when you're when you're on the air. Uh, because of a thing called feedback, but uh, at, the, <laughs> at the same time, uh, we, you know, we talked about a couple of them. Uh, talk radio, obviously, uh, worth your time, and and one that I would, you know, totally love to do on the show if we could ever get Eric Bogosian. I mean, I'm sure he's got great stories. And then um, Good Morning Vietnam, obviously, around the same era as well, radio, film. And then, you know, I was thinking about at least in terms of the opening. And uh, granted, he's a bit more subdued in here, and it's funny that you say, oh, he's doing the Jack Nicholson, uh, Christian Slater, is uh, King of Marvin Gardens, which we did do on the show. And there's that opening where uh, we just get this close-up of of Jack telling this story, and we have no, he's totally disembodied. We have no idea where he is, just sort of a head floating in black space. And then we come to realize that he's actually a radio show host, although not in the um, shock jock vein. Um, that a uh, Barry in talk radio or a Hard Harry in Pump Up the Volume. Or even an Adrian, what was it, Adrian Krakauer or whatever from... Adrian Cronauer, uh, yeah. Cronauer, thank you. Yeah, he's from here. He's from Michigan, actually. <laughs> Krakauer. I was thinking of my uh, German... Uh, <laughs> my, my philosophers there. Yeah, I'm curious if I was inspired by this film because I ended up being a DJ on WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor two months after I saw this. So, cause this was August of 90 that this came out and I was on the radio or tried out for the radio in September of 90, uh, maybe October and was on the air probably in January of 90. So or maybe it was a little bit later than that. But yeah, I, I, I wonder if I was inspired by Pump Out the Volume, if I was one of those many voices. But I will tell you, I was much more subdued when I was on the radio. Like you are today? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm curious. It, I transferred over some of my old uh, cassette tapes to uh, to wave files, and I have this fantasy of one of these days like putting those out as like a like bonus kind of things uh, and I just am I'm afraid to go in and listen to how terrible I was on the air because I know I just used to fucking ramble like crazy. <laughs> You know, what's good is um, I love uh, talking about radio movies and sort of <laughs> rambling bad radio is um, you ever see private parts. Oh, yeah. And there's that whole thing in the beginning where Howard Stern plays himself starting out <laughs> in the college station. Uh, my name is Howard Stern on the Howard Stern Experience. And if you love music, you'll love Deep Purple on TBU. just so perfect like if you've ever done radio and you and you go back and you listen or you think about when you first started out and how uncomfortable you are because mm. first off you're uncomfortable because it's weird to kind of talk to yourself in a room and sound normal yes that's that's one thing the other thing is um when you're learning the equipment you're worried about the technical stuff like, do I have this up enough? Am I going to hit the button on time? Am I going to talk over the song? At the, you know, am I going to stop talking? It's like, so you're thinking about 
all these different operations at the same time while you're doing it. And I went back. I mean, I went back and listened to stuff. And it wasn't even, you know, I mean, this is a couple of years ago. I went back and listened to stuff that I had done maybe five or six years before. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I was like, they actually paid me? <laughs> I was just like my um my cadence was off. I was either talking too fast or too slow. Um you know, the endings on things were terrible. Um I had this tendency at the time to take T's and turn them into D's. You know, like 90 instead of 90, you know. Um yeah, oof. You know. But uh, I actually got paid for that, so um, I'm I'm ahead of the curve now. So sorry, <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, I had one of the other DJs was like, "Yeah, you really ramble. Just quite to try to quit talking between songs so much." And I'm like, "Well, I'm just back announcing." Yeah, no, you do a lot more than that. You just need to only do that. Just read the promos, back announce, and that's it. Yeah, plus I also noticed that everybody's voice goes up at least half an octave. Oh, yeah. When you're starting out. So you're like, yes, it's the right. Because you're like, you have no air. You're constricted. Right. So you're like, it's a, that was Soundgarden and all this. You're like, <laughs> it's almost like teen. It's almost like going through, um, you know. <laughs> Radio like, puberty. <laughs> yeah, it's like your voice is cracking, you know. So you like run out of words at a certain you know you like run out of breath sometimes i mean just yeah. stupid shit like that when you're starting out in radio and it was really strange cuz most of the, i will admit that i was the graveyard guy on the radio so i was not very popular when it came to that and that was where they put, stuck all the new people it's like oh you got a new guy 12 to 3 or 3 to 6 and i was supposed to be on the air it was supposed to be me from 12 to 3 and my friend jeff from 3 to 6 and invariably about Two o'clock in the morning, I would get a phone call from Jeff saying, I'm not going to be able to make it. So I was doing 12 to 6 shifts a lot, (laughs) especially throughout the summer of 90 to 91 or 91. I think it was the summer of 91 to 92. And just uh, so, yeah, I would get up to Ann Arbor because I was living at home. I wasn't living there over the summer. I would drive up to be there around midnight and go in and do my shift from 12 to six and then either go back to the house where I was going to live because we had one room in this house. It was like 10 rooms and we had one room and I would sleep on the floor there or I would just drive home and then crash out. But yeah, six hours in front of a microphone when you get absolutely no feedback. That's the thing. Like when I'm doing this with you or with other folks, it's like, at least I'm having a conversation when I try to record stuff on my own. Oh God, it's just so nightmarish to me. <laughs> I never had to do that long of a shift. Maybe that may explain your rambling. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it could be. Um, it, there, there was a time where I worked 36 hours straight and I tried to become a hummingbird. Yeah. I know. Yeah. You know, the, the, the longest shift I ever had uh, was 16 hours straight um, on an 18 hour day in 2006 for the blizzard that hit West Michigan when I was living in Grand Rapids. So that was rough, but, uh, you know, snow shut down the city for three days, but, um, you know, that's not, that's not normal. You don't do that all the time. So, um, I can't remember when I had a horrible, you know, horrible on air shift that (laughs) like some like six hours straight. That's too long, man. (laughs) 
Well, I would do um, after a while. Like there were times where I had an audio cassette of Black Shampoo, and I'm in safely ensconced in Safe Harbor here. So since Black Shampoo is an hour and a half long, I, I remember playing like 15 minute chunks of it throughout the night. <laughs> So, oh. so, people are like, what is this? Exactly. Just 15 minutes of, of the audio from Black Shampoo at a time. You know, okay. And then next hour, we'll hear what happens to Mr. Jonathan when he visits Mrs. Simpson. Yeah. Listening to Lux Radio Theater. <laughs> <laughs> Graydon Clark's Black Shampoo. Yeah. That would have been funny if, like, the Mercury players, like, restaged Black Shampoo. <laughs> Hello. Oh Hello, I'm Orson Welles. Tonight, <laughs> we're talking about a young man owning a salon and the odd adventures that happened to him. It's Black Shampoo. <laughs> you hear John Houseman, you know? Right. Yes! Mr. Jonathan, he could play, uh, what is it, the Skippy character, right? Oh, God. <laughs> like John, John Houseman with his mid Atlantic, um, you know. Accent. Accent, yeah. 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 Have Joseph Cotton as Mr. Wilson. Yeah. I told you before, schmuck. <laughs> Agnes Moorhead as Brenda. <laughs> <sighs> We're terrible. We're yes. terrible, yeah. And nobody's gonna laugh at that except us, but that's yeah. okay. That's all right. It's We're radio for guys. two. That's exactly. what podcasting is. Radio for two. So there exactly. you go. At least you can pronounce the word 90, all right. 90. And and what was our 41st president's, oh, sorry, 42nd president's name? Who? Bill. Clinton. Clinton? <laughs> yeah. Oh, when people mispronounce that. Well, I grew up, I went to Clintondale. I grew up in Clinton Township. Oh, so you so. you learned it early. Yeah. 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 Who's that guy from Detroit? You mean George Clinton? Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Clinton sounds like uh, something you do to the ladies, but anyway. <laughs> yes. Yes, sorry. sorry. Okay. If, if you're offended, then, you know, he probably turned this off already. Exactly. So 26 years after Pump Up the Volume comes out, I rewatched it uh, today. And I have to say, I remembered quite a bit of it. In fact, that whole thing of who owns the P.O. box, that has been stuck in my head for all this time. So Charles U. Farley has been a member of the uh, the insides of my brains for a long time. Um, I'm not sure if I, you know, like I said before, I'm not sure if I really enjoyed this one 100% when I saw it the first time. And I'm not sure how this rebellion stuff, uh, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, Marlon Brando from the, the wild ones, you know, when, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? You know, um, I'm not sure how it holds up, but it, it's a lot of, like you were saying, a lot of these issues are still relevant today. So I can see where some people could still really get a lot out of this film. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the only thing it suffers from is, uh, you know, technology and haircuts, you know, and if the young kids today take a look at it and they can go, oh, this was 1990, so therefore there were no cell phones and those haircuts look weird, um, they could probably get something out of it. And I, I think a lot of the stuff is universal. The, um, it, it, it is one of the few films that for me, 
uh, I do have a small nostalgia factor for, so I'm willing to admit that because I it was in constant rotation for me when I was a kid. Uh, I had a VHS of it. I used to watch it all the time. So um, I just I I I like it. So now, how does this stack up against Gleaming the Cube? No, never saw Gleaming the Cube. You know, I haven't either, and I feel so guilty for I don't, that. I, 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 the, I remember the trailer, and all I thought was it's a skateboard film, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. God, you know, when I think about it, I, I can remember some movies that I liked Christian Slater in a lot. Like, I thought he was really good in Name of the Rose. See, I like Christian Slater. I mean, um, granted, when I saw this, I didn't know the broad depth of Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't having the thing as you going, oh, he's just being Jack Nicholson. But, I mean, to me, I really liked him in here. Uh, and he's done a lot of great work over the years. And I even thought he did a really nice job in the in the Lars von Trier films the last couple of years. So it's... You know, he's he's a good actor. He does he does good work. Yeah. I've never really had a problem with him. I was glad to see him show up in Mr. Robot. And I have to say, I, I felt bad for him for a while. It seemed like he just kept trying to do TV shows, and they just kept getting canceled. Like he was in that, like, uh, what, Hyde show that he was in for a while, and a couple other things. It was just like, oh, yeah, here he goes again. You were a big Cuffs fan, weren't you? Um, I I feel very ashamed that I haven't seen Cuffs either. <laughs> I can't even remember what it is. Is it like Turner and Hooch or something? Is it like him and a dog and he's a cop or something? I can't even remember. Yeah, well, it, his name is Cuffs. That's oh, all okay. I remember. And I think it has something to do with, like, there's, like, French Cuffs and, um, no, I don't know. Uh, George Cuffs didn't finish high school last lost his job and his girlfriend who is still in college uh is pregnant since he can't uh see how he can support her he thinks he's better off she is better off without her uh so he visits his elder brother brad to squeeze him for a loan so he can go to brazil where there's a gold rush going on (laughs) unfortunately brad is killed and george is suddenly the owner of brad's patrol special district Okay, so it looks like a cops film kind of thing. All right. Well. Yeah, I just remember the the box at the video store. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, it gave a tremendous performance in Star Trek Six. Star Trek Six. Yeah. 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 He's in there for. He has one line. That's a cameo. <laughs> You can't so, even see him. It's, you're so it's, mean. You're so <laughs> mean. You just keep pulling up all this shit. And sorry. God. Sorry. You know? Oh, Tucker. See, Tucker was 1988. Yeah. So, yeah. I do remember Tucker. Yeah, Heather's 89. He was in The Wizard. The Wizard. The Wizard. Star Trek VI. Fern he Gully. Was, he was pretty good. True in, Romance. Uh, Come on. I know you like True Romance. No, I don't. I don't like True Romance. What? Oh, my God. I know. Yeah. Broken Arrow? Broken Arrow. His reunion. With Samantha Morton. Now that one was something. Very bad things. I like very bad things. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, he played Moses in the Ten Commandments. Wow! Wow! Imagine, imagine trying to p- fill uh, uh, Charlton Heston sandals. Woof! That's gonna be difficult. 
he was really good in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Actually, I've been talking about that movie a lot lately for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Probably because of Alan Rickman, R.I.P. Yeah. Talking about how he just chewed that scenery and he was so good. Just stole the movie from Kevin Costner. Yeah. Well, so I have to say, pump up the volume if you haven't seen it. Uh, Sorry we spoiled it for you. If you have seen it and uh, haven't seen it uh, in a while, go back and watch it again. And maybe watch it with your kids if you're an old Gen Xer now who has a millennial and then they can tell you why you suck. Just, uh, you know, don't feel bad when Christian Slater is mock masturbating on screen. There you go. You know, and tell your kids not to smoke. It's not good for them. Right. Yeah, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Within this old house live two residents. One of them is John Russell, composer, professor. The other has been dead for over 70 years. Claire, I'd like to talk to you about the house. Did you die in this house? How did you die? Whatever it is, it's trying desperately to communicate. What is it in that house, Claire? What is it doing? Why is it trying to reach me? That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at The Changeling. I'll be joined by Axel Kohagen and We Hate Movies' Andrew Jupin. In the meantime, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Rob St. Mary. Rob, for the people that may have missed our recent EgoFest show, what have been the haps, good sir? Well, I'm in the uh, Federal Witness Protection Program. Uh, like Henry Hill, I still can't get uh, decent pasta marinara, so they give me egg noodles with uh, ketchup. But no, um, I am extremely busy with my two... Uh, jobs and out there pushing the Orbit magazine anthology book. As a matter of fact, uh, I think the week that this comes out, the final week of February, uh, I will be in Los Angeles on that Saturday at 4 o'clock at Book Soup. So if you happen to be in Los Angeles you want to stop by and say hi and harass me, feel free. Um, just uh, just busy with life, and that's part of the reason why I had to leave the fabulous team here at uh, the projection booth, and I'll be popping up 
on a few episodes this year and hopefully as long as Mike continues to do this fabulous show. And um, you can hear me weekly. Uh, anyone can listen, but really, if you're a Detroiter, it might have value for you. A uh, show I do for the Detroit Free Press, which is the um, the big daily here in town, and that is called Detours. And you can get it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at Freep.com every Thursday. Very cool. Well, we'll be sure to link over to all that stuff over at our website, projection-booth.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I would encourage you to go on over to our website, click on our iTunes link, rate and review the show. It helps get the word out there. Maybe pop on by our Patreon page. Give us some of your hard-earned cash. Those are just a few ways that you can help us take over the airwaves. Talk hard. Is this thing on? Can you hear me now? at sea, anyone within the sound of my voice, I've got 50,000 watts of power. Electricity. Can you hear me now? Out on Route 128, dark and lonely. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
Welcome to my top ten. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the... It's the end of radio! The last announcer plays the last record! The last what? Leaves the transmitter! Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? If there's no one there to receive It's the end of radio As we come to the close of our broadcast day
what's happening, man? Yo, they trying to come down on the ATO when we speak. They say we on the negative tip. What's up? Now, I'm a kick away. I'll stop that smooth and unusual. It's from above the law, so see, it's crucial. High beats are kicking and ripping you with a funky touch. It's done the boot this way, so see, it's too much. D-O-P-E, please don't miss the finding. That's the way that I live, and that's the style of my rhyme. That's on time, just like your watch keeps sticking. KMG. On my side, so that my knowledge keeps sticking. Now, what's really known as a radio cut? When you can't say shit, and you can't say fuck. I really think you want to hear it. But the radio station, you see, they still gonna fear it. Yo, Based upon freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of your own religion to make your own decision. That's baloney. Cause if I gotta play by your rules, I'm being phony. Yo, I got the cater to this person and that person. I got the rhyme for the white or the black person. Why can't it all be equal? Music is a universal language for all people. I better get off the rebelous tip before somebody out the sand starting to slip. I ain't tripping. I'm steadily flowing the door, giving you a dope stop, keeping me on top of the pile. Cause Take over the nation And if you don't want to hear us We'll change the station But we'll sneak in your mind Sink in your mind Creep behind So fast that you won't have time To deny a brother that's from the streets Trying to teach Hoping to reach Yo, 187's got one that's known to preach But I whisper each To have freedom of speech Congress shall make no law Respecting an establishment of religion Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof Or abridging the freedom of speech Or of the press that make it cool so that it tastes real good Too, you see you fall right in it Your mind's small They feed you like infants, like children They bring you along They say we're wrong for making a rap song But ATL, I hit you straight up jam after jam Long as we say what we won't make our snaps We don't give a damn Those that wanna sell out need to get the fuck out the business Cause they ain't doing nothing but bluffing Me, I get wild every rhyme I release Whether I talk about violence or talk about peace that happens in society when people are living low and don't know where they can go. But peace, I think we all want peace, but it's too much to face and it's too far to reach. Whether I say my rhyme fast, slow, sloppy, and neat, see, I wish when I do it to have freedom of speech. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press. Now, if they ban me, I don't give a fuck. Chalk it up and experience. Yeah, bad luck. Because I'm balling. And if he say that it stays, the shit comes out. Cause in the early days when rap first began, some fool jumped up and said it tune went in. But nowadays, I hear song after song, and it proved to me that the fool was wrong. So yo, cut the bullshit all set aside. It's time for the people to realize about the things that happen in the ghetto, which those try to hide when they know we just drive to survive. The homie said he have a job if you give him a break. But when he gets it, he goes by the other man's way. Now see, that's just one more thing I have to talk about. But how they say rap. For what he can do, plus the way that the rays are really up to you. Rap music, a form of literature, words and verbs and adjectives painted up like a picture. Yo, it's gonna hit you, yo, it's gonna get you. And when I'm all finished up, it's gonna fit you. Hitting the nation, station to station, heavy rotation. So strong that it's keeping the pace and we will speak out on any situation. But when we do it, yo, we gotta have freedom of speech. Yeah, see, that's how we had to do that. I gotta give it up to all my homeboys that got freedom of speech. Yo, Code 187, Ice Cube, MC Ren, The Deadly Dr. Dre, Easy, The G O M A C K, 
told chaos house and things. Rufus in the motherfucking house. Yo, to my homie DOC and Laylaw with the clout. And we out, 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 and we out. do about all this i don't know that's the big question isn't it huh i guess nobody knows huh that's tough i gotta go see ya i guess we all gotta go now good night pal good night friends If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.